Okay, so we've got a, a nice little special treat for you guys today. I was able to have a conversation uh, earlier this year with a, a guy I've got, had a lot of respect for for many, many years. Uh, many of you know him. His name is Mike Boyle. He's a, a really a world-famous strength coach out of the Boston area, and he has been a pioneer in the strength training industry since its inception back in the 80s. You know, what I love about Mike is, is that he has this very, very pragmatic sensibility about everything that he does with programming. You know, he knows what his job is, and that is to make athletes better at doing something other than weightlifting. And I think that there's a lot in this podcast that we dig into between functional training and unilateral movements, you know, and really what is, what is the purpose you know, of, of what we do as strength coaches. And then also really a little bit on his background and how he came up with these ideas and, you know, you know, how he became the strength coach that he is today. So there's a lot in here that I think you guys will enjoy. And I, and hopefully you guys will enjoy the listening to it as much as I enjoyed, um, actually having the conversation. So without further ado, I bring you Mike Boyle. All right. Well, I am here with uh, Mike Boyle, who I've admired from afar for a long time and then been lucky enough to teach with with you at the Perform Better stuff and kind of watch you do your thing. And we just got done talking about trunk stability to your gigantic staff, which I think is kind of cool. Um, so thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I love doing these. So I could do these. I could do this all day, honestly. <laughs> yeah, you probably could Talk have Talk about strength and conditioning and record it. That's right. Um, Killer facility, though. I mean, this is this is your second one. Yeah, this is our primary. We have our secondary one is smaller, is like seven thousand square feet. This one is twenty two thousand square feet. So it's yeah, big. it's 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 pretty impressive. Um, that's cool. And now we were joking before. You you've been in the industry for uh, four years, was it? Fourteen. Oh, fourteen. Okay, fourteen, 14 yes. years. Um, which is kind of cool. And when I was trying to sit down and think about stuff that I wanted to talk about with you. One of them is just, you know, all the changes that have happened in the strength conditioning community. I mean, when you started 40 years ago, I think like Cybex and machines were still a big thing. You know, we hadn't gotten into the functional training thing yet. Uh, CrossFit hadn't been around. There's all these sort of paradigms that have come in and influenced the strength training community. And you just said you have strong opinions loosely held, right? So um, let's just start off with a lot of the changes that you've sort of seen in your career and, and maybe just discuss like where you're at now and, and how it's sort of expressing itself in your program. Because I'm sure it's violently different now than what it was, you know, in the early 90s. Uh, without question. And it's funny. I come from the same roots as you in terms of throwers. So my dorm director uh, was Mike Wojcik. So if you're familiar, nice. uh, Mike was a Mike for a long time was the record holder in shot and discus at BC. Went to Springfield, was the field event coach at Springfield. So Rob LaSorsa was one of my training partners, I, one of my um, really good friends. That's actually where we first met. Is it was at one you came to Ohio, Dublin, Ohio, which is where my practice is, and you spoke. That was the first time I saw you speaking. You you and I and Rob LaSorsa and Judd and a couple other throwers sat there and chatted. This is probably the late nineties, early two yeah. thousands. So so I you know, I started I used to train with the throwers because Mike Mike was light years ahead of his time in in that at that time at Springfield College. But when you think, people always say, well, what about like, you know, the evolution? I would think about starting at a time when people ask me, I had a guy that said, well, what do you think the biggest, uh, you know, change has been in strength and conditioning during your career? And I'm like, well, absolutely. 
the internet and then the personal computer because yeah. when we started out doing this there was no internet we were we were reading yes this sports reviews in the library actual yeah. hard hard copies we were looking at microfiche of articles coming out of eastern europe these yep. are things that we were doing you know we didn't have a cell phone we didn't i mean we wrote people said like you've got your notebook in front of you that you're writing in that was how we kept I'm test kind results of old school still yeah <laughs> but we kept our test results people said what did you do for testing i said well I actually probably had mimeographed sheets that somebody typed out for me pre-personal computer. Or maybe, I don't even remember, maybe I wrote guys' names down. I don't know yeah. how. I mean, we had secretaries who typed, right? I didn't have a secretary because I was the strength coach, but the football office had a secretary, and she'd type out a roster, and then we'd take the roster and you know put it on graph paper so we could write down. Yeah, like this squat result here at this time. Exactly. Or... So I think that's the part that people, and that's why I get so aggravated with people is because they don't, they have no idea. They have no sense of history. When you said, you know, Cybex was a big thing. I don't even, Cybex wasn't even really a big thing yet. It, you know, we hadn't even No, I'm at, like the, the, I'm at the 80s of like the, the, the machines. Oh, yeah, the Cybex rehab stuff. Yeah. yeah. But that, yeah, and that's, you know, isokinetics was a big thing. And so I've been through every phase yeah. of this profession from the, the hit guys who didn't like the multiple set guys to the machine-based rehab. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, the machine-based rehab guys. All of these things were, were the things that you live through. And I did a podcast with somebody the other day, and, and we talked about the idea that I was, again, I always say I'm lucky, but I don't I don't know how lucky. Maybe, maybe curious and maybe afraid of failing. All those things kind of come in, roll in together because... I would really look for answers and I'd look really, really hard. So I ended up, I kind of discovered Gary Gray in the 90s and yeah. discovered that was this. pretty early too. Yeah, this idea of function. And I discovered the idea. I can remember sitting and thinking about functional anatomy and just I, being, I don't want to say dumbfounded, but sitting there and thinking like, shit, he's right. Yeah, and it goes against a lot of what's natural to the athlete where you're sitting there and you want to, feel the burn or isolate the muscle and you want to get done with some RDLs, you want to feel your hamstrings. And then it, with the functional model, it's more about integration. And it was just more about what was actually going on. Here's somebody talking about anatomy. I, I mean, I wasn't that long out of school. So I'm, let's say it's 94. I go to my first Gary Gray course. I get out of school in 81. So I've been out for 13 years, but I had had a conventional anatomy course. Yep. And we learned that you know the bicep flexes the elbow and the quadricep extends the knee and the hamstring flexes the knee. And here's Gary saying, oh, actually, just so you know, none of that actually happens. And, and then saying to you, much like you did today in the talk for the staff, think about this and think about what actually happens. And so you just, you, it's, I think for me, life has been this kind of series of epiphanies where you sit there and you just have another one. And I was the thing with Gary Gray, I remember I had, I was working with a guy named Cam Neely, who's now the president of the Boston Bruins, but at that time was a really big deal as a player. He was, um, he, he was, he was like Larry Bird from in the hockey world. I mean, he was a big deal. But he had a patellofemoral problem. And I remember our physical therapist saying he's got a patellofemoral joint problem. And I remember my first thought was, there's a patellofemoral joint? Like, you don't even really, and you're laughing. Yeah. But, but thinking... So now they're saying there's a like there's a joint between like yeah. your kneecap groove, and your, you know yeah a groove and trochlear groove but these were all things I didn't you know I didn't pay attention to anatomy I knew where the patella was I knew there was a tibia I knew there was a femur I, I kind of knew how it you know it was a, it was a hand job but suddenly I'm thinking wow there's a whole world 
just in that little area that I don't know. And then we've been talking a lot about core training. Then suddenly you start, I can still remember a guy asking me about transverse abdominis. Mm. I had a uh, perform better talk and I kind of abadabbed my way around it a little bit. And, and the truth was, I didn't really have a good answer for this guy in whatever seminar that was, probably late 90s. And I thought, you know something, I'm never going to get caught with my pants down on stage like that again. I'm never going to have somebody poke a question at me that I can't answer. And I sat down and I read, that's what you were talking about, Hodges, Hodges. but I read all of the Richardson, Yell, Hodges, you know, even, you know, the Paul Check was writing a lot about that stuff at that time. Yep. Uh, but I read all the research studies. I read segmental spinal stabilization. I, I mean, I read everything that was going that was written at that time. And then you realize now, uh, and then, and then that came big, became passe. I, you know, it's very much like the, I always talk about, it's like, it's like artistic periods. You know, you think that was totally. the drawing period. Yeah. I refer to the next period as the Canadi- and it's, and it's Canadian all, period. It's all supported by research. And yeah. then you have um, McGill coming in and talking about the brace. And now you have, I think, um, Collage talking about the intradominal pressure, which is kind of involved with, with McGill's brace as well. But what, what's interesting is like each of them was supported by research. And the thing that I, I think kind of defines you is your pragmatism. You, you did it today. I was going through and explaining, you know, how to teach somebody how to pressurize into your abdomen. And you had this very pragmatic question. I was like, well, how are we going to get this on a seventh grader? Right? And I think that that's what's allowed you to move through and keep evolving and moving forward in the strength training world because you don't get swayed or sucked into, oh, well, this research, this is it. This is the only way to do it. You're always just going, like, all right, does that make any sense? Like, how am I going to use that? And that pragmatism is what sort of allows you to sort of not get too sucked into the transverse dominus model or too sucked into this bracing model or too sucked into the, the PRI model or too sucked into, you know, whatever it is. Because you're always just thinking like, hey, how am I just going to apply this to my athletes? Right. With and, your system. Yep. And how do I, one, how, do, how does it help us? I always look at that. How does it help us? Like I said to you today, and I, I meant, I mean, you coming in here today, I'm using you to stimulate my staff. That's the purpose of these talks. My staff, there's a bunch of people out there now who might be where I was 20 years ago thinking, wow, I really don't know my core anatomy the way that I should. And I need to go back and look at my anatomy book and think about thoracolumbar fascia and think about, wow, you know, where does internal oblique run? Where does external oblique run? What about transverse abdominis? All, all of the sort of background stuff that I backfilled 20 years ago. Yeah. But I want, I want that for everybody, but I also want, and I say this all the time, I, I'm always trying to figure out, like I want to be wrong as much as I possibly can. Because th- at the moment that I become wrong, I become right again. Yeah, I, I, people ask me all the time, like if I speak on stage and you're really good at answering questions on stage as well, like well, aren't you worried about you know somebody catching it? And I'm like, no, because if they say something smart, then I'll go, oh, I never thought about that before. Like you can't really get me. Because it's not like, okay, if you say something smart, I have no problem admitting like, wow, I, I really like that idea or I really like this. Fine. I just learned something from it, right. which is great. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily matter. I mean, if you're going up there and saying like, all right, everyone else is an idiot and this is the only way to do it, which is common in the, in the industry, then you can get you know, caught with your pants down, so to speak. But like, you know, you're always just pretty laid back and pretty approachable. So if someone brings something up, you almost will be like, oh, that, I, I really like that. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that has to do with just your confidence and your comfort. Like you've been doing this long enough. You're not out there to like prove anything to anybody. You just want to be as good as you possibly can be. And then, you know, you just go. And we had, you know, we talked about this uh, 
prior to hitting record, but, and I won't say the names, but I also think a part of it is having spent time in the industry as a young person, as a 20 year old and as a 30 year old, I watched a lot of people do it wrong. Yeah. And I think as with anything, you can learn as much by watching someone do it wrong as you can by watching someone do it right, particularly when it comes to presentation skills or human relations skills or things like that. And I think you get, I'm very comfortable being wrong. People accuse me all the time, oh, you're a flip-flop, or you're always changing your mind. And I think that's accusing me of learning. Yeah, literally. And good, if you're go, doing ahead, go same, ahead. Yeah, if you're, if you're, I always tell people, if I'm doing the same thing in five years, I haven't evolved. Right. right? I, I think about that clinically all the time. Like the way that I treat a shoulder impingement now is completely different than it would have been 10 years ago. The way that you know I program for athletes now is completely different than it would have been 10 or 15 years ago. And if you have someone that, that like figured it out 15 years ago, well, the they they just got their their blinders up because they're they're not learning anything. They're not listening, like bringing people in and, and listening and, and doing all the stuff that you do. That is going to just continuously make this evolving force in, in your approach to to strength training. It's awesome. Right. And I remember um, Mark Verstegen is one of my favorite people in the industry because I think he's a genuinely like he's. I always say he's so nice that you'd think that he wasn't. You'd think that he was fake if you yeah. didn't really know him. But he was doing a talk one time at Perform Better. And he said at the talk, hey, if anybody out here thinks they have all the answers, please hang around after the talk because I got a lot of questions. Yeah, and, yeah, and I just laughed. Line. I thought that's the perfect way to go into this in terms of, hey, if, if you're a know-it-all, hang out for a while. I'll buy you a couple of beers because yeah, I'd love to learn from yeah, you. Yeah, I'd like to learn about the cosmos and the secret of life and world peace. You know, there's a bunch of things you can do for me that, uh, that I'm not going to be able to do for myself right now. And I think if you can maintain that attitude as you age, it's really good. If you can pass on that attitude as you age, people always comment about, you know, uh, my, my kids, my, you know, the, the Kevin Cars and the Brendan Rierichs and the Steve Bigelow's and Vinny's and these guys that you met today. And they're always, they're so good and they're so nice and they're such good teachers. And I'm like, yeah, because we're, we're passing on lessons that we've already learned. And one of the biggest lessons is don't be a dick. So yeah. we don't have any dicks. Like, you know, you might be the smartest guy I've ever met and the best coach I've ever met, but if you're a real dick, you're not going to work here. Right. It, because I just, we're not going to do that. Like, we're not going to compromise what we think of as the, the big picture, which is that we're going to be really good people in order to, to focus in on the small picture, meaning I might have a guy who's a really good coach. And that's just the culture that you set here. You can tell how nice everybody is. I mean, multiple people from your staff came up and introduced themselves to me and they had really, really good questions and they weren't saying it like, you know, in the accusatory way where they're like trying to catch me. They really were just inquisitive. And I think that that inquisitiveness, you still have this, is really important. Like one of my biggest mentors is a guy named Robert Lardner who's a physical therapist. And, you know, he's been in the industry for 30 years and he has childlike inquisitiveness about learning still. Like just loves to learn whereas a lot of people that have been in the industry for a while they ah, they just got it down like they you know they have these they have the programs they have a system and they don't they don't really want to keep learning and i think that you know one of the things that i hope is that you know even 20 30 years from from where we are right now i hope that i still have that desire to keep learning because that's just kind of what keeps you getting better and better and better 
Exactly. It's funny. I did. I saw Robert speak, and I can't remember where, but somewhere is he in Midwestern guy? He's Chicago. Yeah, because it was with Evan Osar, I think. Ed, what, what, or maybe, Evan Osar is or maybe, hugely influenced by Robert. Yeah. I don't think Evan would. I'm not putting words in his mouth, and I, I think Evan would be um, honored to be sort of part of that lineage. Right. No, and that's. But I think that was. I think we did a Northeast seminars thing out in Chicago, and he was one of the speakers because I remember seeing him speak. Yeah, and he's also. Um, just beautifully humble. So he's a big influence to me clinically, you know, also a good friend of mine. And what I loved about it is, is Robert clinically is probably the smartest dude in the room, whichever room he's in. And he starts his, when he does a presentation, he typically starts off with like four or five slides of pictures who, with people who have influenced him on that topic. And he just thanks them. He's like, these are the, these are the shoulders of the giants on which I'm standing which I think is remarkable for a dude that's that smart to still be like, well, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for, you know, this person or, or whatever. And that's, I think that's a wonderful precedent to kind of and, set. But I think everybody should do that. I think everybody, you know, if you get to the point where you really think you invented the internet, then we got problems. <laughs> I agree. Um, so let's go back. You know, you're, you've been doing the functional training thing for quite a while. You just mentioned Gary Gray. Would you say that he was like the first one that just sort of like pulled the the blinders up that you could kind of see, oh wow, there's a lot more going on here than just, you know, muscles pulling on, you know, from the anatomical position? I'm going to give credit where credit is due, although it's painful for me to do so. Vern Gambetta really was the first oh, big influence right. on me in that regard. And Vern was the one who introduced me to Gary. I unfortunately think Vern from a interpersonal standpoint may have lost his way a bit in the last decade, but uh but with that said, I can't, I can't pretend like he didn't exist or that sure. he wasn't there. So he was the guy. The first I can I remember, and it's God. Imagine being a kid and thinking that you wanted to be Vern Game better. I, I have trouble thinking about that now, but I did. I wanted to be Vern Game better. I wanted to be Don Chu. I remember seeing these guys, the late Brent McFarlane. There were some guys who were really good speakers that would be at the NSCA, which at that time kind of only game in town, only place to yeah. see the heavy hitters, right? Yep. And I'd go see those guys and think, wow, someday I would love to be able to get up on stage and... Oh, so you've always wanted to present. Oh, yeah. Always. Oh, so you always have. You know, I, and I, the, from the first time, um, not from the first time I saw those guys, because even before that, I've always, my father was a teacher, my father was a high school principal. I always, my brothers actually, all of us could easily emcee the high school variety show. Do you well, know what I mean? Like they all can so talk. Yeah, and, so I, I come from two teachers as well. My dad was a teacher, my mom was a teacher. Um, you know, where did, where did that sort of love, you just, when you were a little kid, like just, it just sort of, it was sort of in you. Cause I, I didn't know that you did that. And now your style, you have this really nice approachable laid back, like you just walked out of the gym and you're just sort of standing there talking. You don't have like this contrived, you know, facade that you put up, this this character that you play, where where did you sort of develop that? Or is that just who you are? And that's just... I think some of that, that's my dad. You know, in terms of my dad was that guy. Like my, my father, it was very... I wrote an article about him uh, maybe two years ago called An Extraordinary Ordinary Man because one of the things I realized is that my father, it didn't exist on the internet anymore. Or not on the, uh, anymore, it didn't exist on the internet. It was like he was never born. Because the way the world is now, if yeah. you weren't sort of, if someone hasn't written about you in the last 15 years, yeah. you don't exist. Yep. So uh, my father was a military policeman in World War II. My father was a, like a larger than life figure 
in his hometown. He was the best athlete in his town. He went to Boston University, and he's in the Boston University Athletic Hall of Fame for football. He went to, our, you know, a, my high school, where I went to high school, was a phys ed teacher and then was a health teacher and then was an assistant principal and then was the principal. And now his name is literally on the building. It's the Arthur P. Boyle building. So, you know, if you drive down Salem Street in Malden, he's there. He died very young, died at the age, almost exactly the age that I'm at now, which is a little bit scary. Uh, but his funeral was like an all day affair. I wow. mean, people, thousands of people in line. It looked like a parade when they when they drove him to the grave site. There people lined the streets. But he was a very humble, ordinary kind of folksy guy. Grew up in Charlestown in a very working class neighborhood, poor. Father was an alcoholic. And he said, I, because I'd be a Boston cop if I didn't want to play football. He said, but I wanted to play football, so I went to college to play football. And then I happened to meet my college football coach who said, maybe you should be in the school of education and be a physical education major. And then maybe you can coach when you get done. And all those things happened. But... He was just one of those guys who could get up in front of an audience and and be exactly like what you said in terms of just very down to earth, kind of. It's run fun the show. listening to the influences because I've had this talk um, with Gray Cook and if anyone who's seen Gray Cook talk, you know, he's got this this really nice kind of Southern boy preacher thing that he does. So he tells these allegories and it's it's fun to watch. And this is what's so awesome about the perform better. Like he, you know, I'm just happy that I get to present there, but. If somebody comes in, if you wanted to go to that, you could just have not even be in the industry. If you want to just watch good presenters, you know, you can come in and you can see somebody that has your style or you can see Greg Cook or Greg Rose is another like, you know, very clear, very articulate, very intelligent speaker that he does. And then you got Brandon Marcello, who's also just awesome. Dan John has got his own little style. So there's so many just great presenters on that Perform Better series that you guys have just sort of created this army of awesome presenters. Right. And But Grace, father was a preacher. Yeah, and Gray's a, like he's a preacher. You know, he's preaching movement. He gets up yeah. there, and he you know you you go with him. All he's almost like one of these guys on cable TV. You know, with a big church in Oklahoma, but he yeah. just gets people. Everybody buys in, and everybody loves him, and everybody's mesmerized. That's his thing. Mark Verstegen, same way. Mark's dad, high school principal. Kind so, of funny because like yeah. So I, I not to put myself in that category, but I've got two teachers right. that were brought me in and I, I just love teaching so that's well, why do you do it because you know I'm, I'm a full-time clinician like that's what I do but I just love getting in front of people and sort of teaching and then having that that, that interesting conversation and, and that dynamic between the audience you know and the presenter I love sort of being part of that and doing that yeah my my dad taught my mom was a school secretary so same yeah and it's interesting there's a lot of people I think that you'll kind of run across even if you look at Dan John Dan Dan was a religious studies teacher for 20 years, I think. Yeah. And same thing, brilliant guy. I mean, I say the thing I love about Dan is that you have to have a certain intellectual level to get the jokes. And, <laughs> and if you don't, because he'll make great literary references that I think 50% of the audience might sometimes miss. Yeah, and, sure. And yet... Which is good. It's just, it's just layers to his... Yes, yeah, and he's, but he, right, he's got that same kind of folksy homespun and I think non-academic because I always say people everybody had that teacher in school who was supposedly really good at what they did but sucked at teaching everybody everybody yeah. can tell you that guy who that guy was for them 
And I always thought, I don't ever want to be that guy. I never want to be that guy who people think, well, that might, he knows a lot about training. He can't explain it to you, but You're he right. knows a lot about it. Whereas I wanted to be the opposite. People, I love when people say to me, you make it so simple. You make it so understandable. But that's I, a teacher. That's what, that's what right. a good teacher does. Exactly. You can take something. That was like what I'm trying. I, I continuously am refining how I'm explaining intradominal pressure. So I think that a lot of people don't understand what, what that is. They can use the term in a sentence. And so I'm always trying to make it as clear as possible, right? And so the, what I've got it down to now is that it's, it's, the, it's the summation of mechanical forces between the diaphragm and the torso muscles. That's it. Like, it's just those two guys working against each other to do that. Because a lot of times I'd ask people what it was, and it, they'd give like these sort of, well, it's pressure in the belly. Yeah, I get, okay, yeah, I know. And I wanted to just keep digging around, but you know, you do a good job of taking other complex concepts or the functional training and that kind of thing, and just like I said, just having this very pragmatic approach about it, and then just explaining it in a very, very simple way because it doesn't have to be super complex. No, and uh, Sven Nader, if you're a, a John Wooden fan, so Sven Nader was the backup center to Al Cinder for a long time in those great UCLA teams, but he wrote a book called "You Haven't Taught Me Till I've Learned." talking about Wooden's teaching style. And I, we always talk about that here in terms of teaching is the imparting of knowledge. So you, if, if someone doesn't learn it, then you didn't teach it. You, you, tried. Said, it out, you, you said it out loud. Right. You said, I tried to teach it, yep. but you don't know it, so I didn't teach it. I, you know, when it's like, I'm going to try to teach you to clean. Okay. If you can't clean... You didn't teach then it. I didn't teach it. Yeah. And that we go through this all the time. We're constantly talking with our coaches about the idea that it's going to be a really long-term process in terms of getting these kids to move better, whether it's clean, whether it's gobble squat, whether, you know, the, all these simple things that we're trying to get them to do. But the better we are at teaching, the faster they will learn it. And if they're yeah. not learning it, then it is unfortunately showing us that we're not great at teaching it. Well, but that's why I asked you the, like the, the young kid reference because I it was really interesting when I first moved out of college and started coaching more middle school kids. I used to always go home to people and be like, I really suck at this, just so you know. I Last week I thought I was really good because yeah. I get these kids at BU that are really good athletes and I just show them shit to do and they go like do this it, yeah. and I go, yes, exactly like that, just the way I showed you. And then I do the same thing with a seventh grader. Who may it, or may not be a good athlete. Oh, and it's, it's, not, it's not even remotely close. You look and think... Okay, I didn't obviously do a good job of explaining that. I didn't cue that in a way in which you, at your little seventh grade mind, would be able to grasp that. And it's it's really different. That's why I say, and I think this is one of the big things with guys in professional sports, I've said the easiest job in the world is to be a strength coach in pro sports from the implementation of the training program standpoint. I won't say it's easy from a human relation basically standpoint. do no harm at that point because they're and so the, good so good out that you but, just can't but also them. the neural system of these oh, guys yeah. is their their ability they they have the highest ability to acquire skills probably of anybody on the planet yeah and so rehab is the same way if somebody comes in and i can tell instantly if they have really really good control over their body and if they do it's very easy to teach them how to do stuff if they have no idea you know you know where their pelvis is in space, or how to you know how to like you know work with their abdomen or whatever. Then it's gonna be it's it's just a, it's brutal. And right. a pro athlete, a lot of times, are just super easy to work with. And and the super elite, like I wrote this article one time called "Rehab Injury and the F Elite Fast Twitch Athlete." And one of the things that I said is that the elite fast twitch athlete is a little bit cursed because they have the best nervous system. So if you think of your like your center fielder in baseball or your pitcher 
or your point guard in basketball or your quarterback in football, those types of people, their ability is both a blessing and a curse because they really know. And one thing, you, know, you rehab guys like this, you'll have that guy who comes in and they're, all, they're like, it's not quite right. And you kind of look at him and think like a grunt, you know, a guy who's playing guard for the Browns is going to be like, that's fine, I can live with it. Whereas, you know, the quarterback is going to be like, you know, it's, it's like, I had a guy one time, we had a really good outfielder, and he would be like, how, how do you feel? He'd be like, he'd be like, I'm like 87% above. And I, you know, I used to look and think, this guy's whacked. Yeah, and just then says, I started to think, he's probably not whacked at all. He probably is, knows, like if we could do some sort of metric, he'd probably come out around 87% because yeah. he has this really, really high, high, high in nervous system. And he feels stuff, like stuff that you and I probably don't feel. Yep. He feels at a very high level. And then people equate that with that guy. He's soft. No, I mean, that, that, that gets into what I talked about earlier where um, perception is a prerequisite for control. So a lot of people, they use the term stability, but really it's motor control. And when you have athletes that are just getting more information coming to their body, more proprioception, more mechanoreception, whatever – then they're able to exhibit way more control over their movements because they can feel it and they can make these small fine-tuned adjustments to things because their nervous system is so is just so much better than everybody else's. And a lot of that is they just have more perception, more data, more information going to the brain. So the brain is able to control the body better. Yep. I the two years I spent with the Red Sox were from that standpoint were extremely enjoyable because there is no more elite skill in sports than pitching in Major League Baseball. Nothing. And I throwing agree. a hammer. I, what about throwing, throwing a hammer? A, no, not throwing a hammer. No. I would argue, honestly, no, having no, what I'm saying, but I would argue having been around every sports skill, hitting golf balls, doing all these things. Well, I guess well, I, I, nothing. What what is it about? I mean, I, I agree that that's the, well, the pressure on them, and and not like, even the pressure, but the ability. One of the so when you spend time in Major League Baseball, I did a talk on pitching one time, and I said, okay. I'm going to explain pitching to somebody, and I and I would say I'm like I'm an analogist. I always word the, use the word analogist. I don't even know if, I, if analogist is a thing. It's a thing but now. It's it's but, one who uses analogies, right? Exactly. So yeah. I showed a picture of a milk crate against the wall. I said, okay, if I put that milk crate sixty feet six inches away from you against the wall, I said, if you can throw the ball into the milk crate at ninety miles an hour, you can pitch in like triple A baseball. <laughs> right. right, right. If you can tell me. What corner of the milk crate the ball is going to go into? You can pitch in double A baseball. If you can then manipulate the ball with one pitch and make it go into the milk crate, like I can throw a curveball and it goes into the milk crate well, every if you're, time. If you're Greg Maddox, you can hit all four corners. Right, exactly. With, and that's with my six point. or seven different pitches. That, yeah. And that's the thing. Like yeah. here's and yet when you you know you talk about control and the ability, what I realized talking to pitchers is a lot of times they couldn't even describe what they were trying to do. You'd ask, guy, what are you doing? And they'd start showing you. They'd be like, they'd like make motions with their hands or they'd show you how they put their fingers on the ball. They'd show you and you'd kind of be like, well, and they it's don't. subtle changes when, right. the ball, when, the, when they're letting it go. But they don't have a word. A lot yeah. of them wouldn't be able to look at you and say, well, you know what I really do is I supinate, you know, or I pronate really hard but with only two fingers. They don't. feel the pressure on just yeah. this part of my and, knuckle. You know, and then guys would say, I can remember we had a guy, uh, we had Josh Beckett one time, and great, like, a, I mean, you know, just an elite, probably be a Hall of Fame pitcher at some point. But they were talking about the fact that he couldn't pitch with a blister. And, of course, sports radio is just, you know, castigating him. Like, you know, a blister. How can he not pitch with a blister? And you're like, 
you don't have any idea what the skill entails if you think that a like he can't he's not an elite level pitcher with a blister on his finger. Yeah. Because he cannot manipulate the ball in the way that he needs to manipulate the ball. And Joshua's brilliant. He's actually I have a quote from him in my presentation cuz I used to always goof around with him cuz he became one of my favorite guys although a lot of people found his personality to be not necessarily fun. I found him to be really fun and I said I said, Josh, it's just, you know, at some point it just comes down to going out and throwing strikes, right? And he literally looked at me, he's like, Mike, you don't get it. You don't get it. He said, Mike, the key to this job, he said, you got to throw balls that look like strikes. And I was like, you're yeah. right. You know, because what are they really trying to do? They're trying to get you to Happy Gilmore, you know, swing at a ball that's in the dirt. They're trying to get you. And, and, and I guess my only point is just that that's like the highest end of the neural continuum in terms of, you know, you talked about the idea, you know, we're trying to sequence literally force from your foot yep. and make it come out your fingers. And hit a quarter. Yeah, and hit a, yeah, and hit a quarter. Like hit, you know, or miss just by enough so that the guy who's yeah. looking, who's also incredibly skilled like you. Yeah, hitting is another. Right. You, it's probably the second hardest thing. But you make him misjudge that. Yep. So, he thinks it's one thing and it's not. Yeah. But it's interesting. Some of those guys, if we looked at motor control in other areas, they might not be the most efficient. And we had some guys like that that I would have looked at if you'd said, do they have good motor control? I would have been like, in the context that we spoke about in the last hour outside, I would say no. <laughs> yeah, you can, if we get into sports performance, there's a lot of attributes that an athlete can have that can make them perform at an elite level. And not all of them are... Um, body awareness and athleticism. So athleticism to me is the ability to learn new movements quickly, right? That's the guy that just, they come in, maybe they're not super strong, maybe they are, but they can just, uh, you show them a golf swing, okay, fine, I can, they can pick it up. But you can be, like in hockey, like every sport's going to have different requisites for that sport. So Lance Armstrong, you know, he's obviously an, an amazing athlete. He's got good endurance and, you know, whatever. But he doesn't necessarily have to be explosive, he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to be athletic. He he rides a bike. That's not to say that biking isn't challenging, um, but he's going to have different attributes. And in baseball, it could be the same way. Like you could have a guy that doesn't have all that much motor control that's playing baseball, but can just hit the ball out of the park every time he gets his hand because he's so explosive. But the guys that you're describing are the ones that that have that incredible perception of what's going on. And I I kept thinking because I know you work with a lot of hockey players. Uh, Pavel Kolaj, the guy that uh, that started DNS, uh, he worked with Yermir Yager for a while, who played forever. I think he's still think playing he's still in the playing. Czech Republic, yes. And Kolaj tells a story where they basically, where he could tell who sharpened his skates when he put them on. So he could just skate, and he just knew, I don't know if they have two or three or five sharpeners, but he knew who sharpened his skates by just how they felt on the ice. I mean, that's amazing. And then the other one is that they had college so they, they had the hockey stick and they cut them down by one millimeter each, five sticks. And he just took each stick around and played for a little bit and came back. He's like, this is my stick. And he was right. He was able to tell the difference between a, like a millimeter difference in the length of the stick because a guy that's going to perform at a pretty elite level for 20 years and still play, you know, at a professional level for 70 years. How long has he been playing? Like, he's in his 50s, 20, I think. Yeah. Uh, I would say late 40s, but he's been, I mean, well, he's well into the 30s yeah. of playing. But you're right, and that's what I mean. And I guess my, my only point is that there are, there's a real continuum of neural ability. And 
at the generally at the at the elite level in most non like you brought up Armstrong I think the endurance people are different because it's not neural ability you know theirs is more kind of circulatory muscular kind of yeah. thing but but those elite nervous system people are and it kind of goes back to Tony Hollis feed the cats idea but there you have to really manage those people really well because they're much more they're much more capable of breaking down much like if you had a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, you'd have to really take care of it. You, you can't like, you can't drive it in yeah, the snow. Yeah, their check engine light will come yeah, on faster than. Yeah, and you can't put regular gas in it and you can't, you just can't yeah. do it. it. It's not made to function that way. And I think, I think there's a lot of people in sports because so many of us in general were grunts, were less than great athletes. And you might be, you're on the other side of the coin in terms of, well, but you pump, at least were a national, the, like you were a national, but you were a national caliber athlete. I was. I was basically a okay high school athlete. <laughs> I was what I call an also ran in a sport that no one cares about and an event that no one's ever heard of. So that was <laughs> that's that's my. But with that said, I think there are too many coaches who don't appreciate the uniqueness of that elite athlete and and realize that what you're seeing is really kind of a a fundamental blessing curse sort of. Thing. Yeah. I mean, we can kind of tie this back into the functional training thing to what you're talking about as an athlete that can feel their body really well and can and modulate is what, what I was kind of talking about today when we're, when we're talking when I was lecturing about stability um, with the functional training thing that I, I want to get back to. It's almost like when you're doing functional training that we'll define here in a second, you're almost training the ability to do those things because you're not putting them in as control of an environment and you're wanting them to modulate and have to you know do sensory motor integration almost to strengthen that skill now the one the athletes you're describing of course are superstars at that but everyone would benefit from improving their ability to modulate their movements so let's let, let's per, well perfect segue because one of the things you find is that your elite fast twitch athlete loves functional training your elite fast twitch athlete does not like the conventional meathead method of training. They will generally be people who shied away from heavy squatting, did not love Olympic lifting. They didn't because they found that it dampened their elite level nervous system. And they didn't, they don't say that to you because they don't know enough to even be able to verbalize that to you. But they knew somehow very much like it was funny. Carl Lewis liked my tweet yesterday, which I thought was one of the high points of my career. I said, Carl Lewis liked my tweet. But I talked about the fact that Lewis was not a big weight room guy. And he actually said, he responded again to the tweet and said something to the fact of, you have to remember that I was a long jumper, not a sprinter. And you're kind of like. He said that? Yeah. You I know, mean, he's the, like the greatest long jumper of all time. Right. But. Yeah. but but was arguably the greatest sprinter of all time, was participated in, you know, you think of the most studied sprint races, but, and this is what I talk about, you have the Charlie Francis thing versus the Carl Lewis thing, the Ben Johnson versus Carl Lewis, the weight room rat. But what we did as strength coaches, as we gravitate towards the confirmation bias, we yes. gravitate towards the guy whose behavior reinforces yep. the behavior that we find to be acceptable. And that's where I, I love, like I said, with functional training. I think in all honesty, too much conventional bilateral training probably decreases your neurological efficiency. But and you look at someone like you, like you look at a thrower, that's probably offset by the number of throws that you take. Well, but I mean, I, I love what you just said, how it sort of like beats up the nervous system. And when, when I was training at Ashland, 
you know, we got just crazy strong and we would do lots and lots and lots of a lot of the, what you'll call, you know, you were calling meathead lifting. And I noticed that it actually prohibited my ability to, to execute technique. So I would go to the, into the ring and I may not be able to make those fine tuned motor adjustments because sometimes even though if I wasn't sore, I just couldn't feel the same amount. Like my nervous system was just like, just kind of beat up and wrecked from the, you know, the previous, you know, the wave loading of the squats or, you know, whatever we did. And this is, was kind of the first time that I started to feel that like, oh man, maybe the weight room stuff is actually detracting from the training. And that's where I think the functional model that you guys use here is powerful because when you're in the weight room, I thought when you said confirmation bias, I thought you were going to say you're going to gravitate towards the things that you can sort of like measure. So if you have a women's soccer team come in, well, I can measure their back squat, right? I can, and they can work, I can measure their clean. I can measure that stuff, but you can't really measure like a weird sandbag, you know, yeah. clean. It's just, it's, yeah. it's not that easy to measure. But at the same time, when someone's in the weight room and you're training them here, your job is to make them better at something else. That is playing hockey. That is playing soccer. That is throwing a baseball really fast and really accurately. And when you de-emphasize the metrics in the weight room, it's, it feels a little bit you know, unsettling because you don't have this. Well, no, their squat went up in this night. You're like, well, I don't give a shit. I care. Oh, now he throws 97 instead of throwing 94. Or I care that, oh, now that girl can, you know, play soccer for longer without an injury or whatever. That's kind of the, the benefits of the functional model, which I really liked that you said. But it's, again, it's de-emphasizing what we're doing in the weight room every single day. Right. And, and I think I think we should I think we should think long and hard about what we do in the weight room every single day, particularly as we move towards the elite level. Because I, I do think that I always say, is, if you think, because again, you talked about neurology in your presentation today, when you think about neurology, the body does not do things bilaterally really well. I, the analogy, again, I, you know, and I, back to being an analogist, I say, okay, throw two baseballs at the yeah. same time. I'm gonna give you one in your right hand, one in your left hand, and I want you to try to throw them and make them both go into the milk crate. You'd be like, and it would just feel terrible. Yeah, it would feel terrible. And you're like, I can't do it. It feels terrible. If, but if I asked you to do any skill bilaterally, you know, if I asked you to, I mean, because obviously, you know, hammer throwing, you turn one way and throw. If I said go the other way, you'd be like, eh, I can do it, but I, I'm, I'm not I'm not as good right. trying to turn the other way. It's like your body has preferential neurology and you know that. I always I use the example of writing. Your body knows that it writes. You write right-handed? Mm-hmm. So your body knows that you write right-handed. If I said, I want you to write all your notes left-handed, you'd be like, well, I can do that, but it's gonna take me significantly longer and they're not going to look as good. That's how I feel about the people who argue with me about functional training and who argue about bilateral training where I'm looking at them and saying, why can you accept neurology when, again, confirmation bias, you accept neurology when you want to, and then you deny neurology when you don't want to. Because there's, when we look at like the bilateral deficit idea, one of the theories behind bilateral deficit is that the body doesn't like bilateral contraction. So when we look at bilateral deficit and they always use, the, the two big studied ones are hand grip and leg extension. Sure. But basically, you know, the idea being right hand grip plus left hand grip equals more than 
bilateral hand grip. You know, right leg extension plus left leg extension equals more than bilateral. Which, which supports functional training. Exactly. Supports functional training because you look at that and think, neurologically speaking, you display inefficiency at bilateral activities. And you see it. We did it with vertical jump with our Olympic women. Every one of our Olympic women had about, had. An, I would say the average was 25% bilateral deficit we did vertical jump and then we did right leg left leg and added them together everyone except one and the interesting thing was the one who didn't have bilateral deficit was the highest vertical jump she had a 29 inch vertical and she was 14 right 15 left and everybody else was mid-20s but somewhere we had one girl who was 19 right 18 left yeah. and so she ended up at she was 37 yeah and and so I think there's numerous neurological examples that support the whole kind of functional hypothesis, if we want to call it that. And then we get into it, and then it, like you go back to the idea, well, but we didn't start with the functional training. The idea of functional training was... Late 90s at the earliest. Yeah, and injury prevention. Yeah. You know, we were just realizing, again, back our my thing was back pain. We were seeing, in our situation then, we were 1AA football, and... We had about 20% of our athletes who were kind of frequent flyers at the training. We even had our trainer, Maria Hutzik, used to call it back school. And we'd have back school every day, and those 20 guys would have to come in and do all their stabilization exercises, which we were pretty, like, we were pretty progressive for the 90s in sure. terms of what we were doing. But it was, I guess, progressive, regressive simultaneously in the sense that, wait a second— We've got 20% of our guys, 20 guys are in here with what back pain. What are we doing? You're like, why, why are we doing this? But but American football was so steeped, much like throwing. Throwing is right? the same Except way. Except Bonnerchuk. Yeah. Right? So Bonnerchuk is actually... He's a functional training guy. Well, he's he's even all... Yes, but Bonnerchuk, um, a guy I used to train with, Kibway Johnson, who's two-time Olympian, trained with him for a while. He trained with Judd for a while, too. And Bonnerchuk was famous and just de-emphasizing the weight room. And he just had them throw a bunch. And back to what we just were referencing before, he didn't want the weight room to interfere with the actual throwing. And most, a lot of the throwing was very, was more imitative in nature. There was less conventional bilateral oh, training in the Bonnerchuk yeah. method. And there was more, you know, step ups and, yep. you know, and you look at that and think he was doing functional training. Bonnerchuk, if you look, that's what he was doing. And he was the biggest thing, too. And this is, goes back to the Carl Lewis thing about jumping, because I've been talking about this since I kind of started. Uh, I mean, you guys are buddies with, at this point. You guys are best friends now, right? Because he, he liked your tweet. So yeah. you and Carl are buddies. Yeah, me and Buddy. Yeah, but I, I want to go to his house when I go to Houston <laughs> and uh, hang out. But uh, no, I. it's really interesting because I was saying, I was a Ben Johnson guy. You know what I mean? Because Ben Johnson, that's my confirmation bias. Ben yeah. could squat 600. Ben could bench 365. You know, but then I always say to people, and this is what I was, what I was leading towards, if you Google Usain Bolt strength training right now, and you go, have you ever watched, have you ever Googled Usain Bolt strength training? Yeah, it shows him like dragging sleds in the dirt and and like doing leg press and leg extension. And yeah. there's one video where he's literally doing like sit ups and incline bench at the same time. It looks like my friends at the Y in 1975, <laughs> right? So I would look at that and think, hey, me being the brilliant strength coach that I am, man, if I could ever get Usain Bolt on a really good program, he might be the fastest guy in the world. Yeah. And then you're like. Shit, he's already the fastest guy in the world. Yeah. But he's doing, and then you're like, but he's doing it all wrong. And you're kind of like, all right, if you're the fastest guy in the world, are you doing it all wrong? I, don't, I mean, part of me thinks that, like, the, I, 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 if, if basing it on principles, I think that 
I, I, I don't. You'd think say yes, wouldn't you? I would say I, I would say that yeah, he could. <laughs> he, he could have be been. Yeah, he could be better. Except what you realize, and this is the point that I've come to, is that or sprinting and strength training have less to do with each other than we think. Yeah. But the commonality of all great sprinters is sprinting. Yeah. And the commonality of all great sprinters, the secondary commonality is jumping. They're all doing plyos and they're all running sprints. And then we're trying to fit the weight training program into that. And then we're trying to attribute our success to the weight training program as opposed to looking at it and saying, wait a second, is the success maybe, you know, and that's like you said, the bonus checking. What do they do? Well, they threw a lot. Well, you'd want to get, you know, there's an old, uh, I think it was in the, you ever see the old Ayn and Baroga book? It's called weightlifting training for all sports or something sure. it's an old Romanian book but in there there's a quote I think it's in that book that says uh, if you want to be great at the violin you should play the violin and and I think that's sometimes the case is that I think we've given strength training too much credit for being this kind of omniscient force that's going to influence everything in a really great degree right and we and I hate to say it because I'm a strength coach but we might be not as right as we thought. And I say, that's not a reason to not lift because I still believe it's a tremendous injury prevention technique. I still believe it's a tremendous way to add muscle mass, which allows you to compete in general. Like if you look in throwing, a 150 pound thrower will generally not throw as far as a 300 pound thrower, right? I mean, there's not been very many guys in the Olympics that have showed up in the field events under 200 pounds. Nope. Right? Yeah, I mean, the- Probably none. One of the things that goes along with that is when we look at, like, the U.S. typically doesn't do great with hammer throwing or javelin throwing. And you look at the other, the other countries that do, they don't do a lot of weight training. They throw a lot and they, and they train for much, much longer. So I think the, the heavy influence of strength training in the American system is because we pretty much have them for a four-year window. They come in and you have to get as much out of that athlete in four years. Whereas if you're just training for the hammer throw in Germany, there is no four-year window. You're just training for a club. And so they're not trying to accelerate this. And I think weight training can accelerate the performance, but it also can kind of create blocks there because then they might get injured a little bit quicker or it creates movement dysfunction that is going to prevent them from getting to that next level. Or it creates an obsession with small improvements because I think the key with strength training is looking at it. And I would get, and I, I don't know you as a trainee, like I didn't train you, but I would be willing to bet that at about year six, you were probably somewhere strength wise close to where you were in year 12. And you probably spent a lot of time trying to get stronger at different lifts and with, Marginal gains, you know, it's kind of like the sky blue thing, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the aggregation of marginal gains, you know, if I get my incline up another 10 pounds, if I can bench, you know, another 15 pounds, if I can just squat another that's 20 what I, pounds. That's what I need to throw 70 meters or right. something. Right. And, and, I, and I think what happens is instead of looking at that and thinking, okay, I always think let's take this latent strength training period and run with it as fast and as far as we possibly can. And then once we hit that point, you know, from a maturation standpoint, I'd look at you and think, okay. You're about as big as you're going to get. And your strength is more than adequate for your size. We probably should be shifting to something that's slightly more specific, maybe more so, functional. So, so my, my this is a great segue. So my shift in the later half of my career, I was, the strongest I ever was, 
um, was about four years before I retired. And then my farthest throws were later in my career. And what I did is I dropped my lifting down to twice a week instead of um, four or five days a week. Twice a week, I only did three total squats sets in the whole week. But after every throwing session, once I started to get tired and the motor, I didn't feel like I could improve my technique, so I might have thrown 15 times or 25 times, whatever. Then I would pick up a plate, a heavy shot put, a pud, a kettlebell, and for 10 or 15 minutes, I would just do a series of two or three different kinds of throws. So it's not... It doesn't mimic the actual throw that I did, but it's just like, you know, holding a kettlebell and like twisting and throwing it like a javelin or just doing right and left-handed shot put. So it's just throwing shit that's heavy. And so now instead of spending more of my time doing this bilateral hip hinging thing in the weight room, I did way less of that. I was able to throw more. And then I just did like this sport specific, just throwing shit, which is very functional. And that was when I got incredibly strong in the ring which is what I, which is really the, the only thing that matters. Right, ultimately that's what you're trying to do. And I think, like I said, so I think, and, and it goes back to, I don't know if we talked about it uh, off of this or before, but the, the Adam Grant, The Think Again. Yeah, that was before. Book before, but really good book. But it goes back to that idea of thinking against and examining, because one of the things that I realized, even as a college strength coach, one of the things I realized was freshman and sophomore year were easy. Kids come in as a college strength coach. Everybody gets stronger. Everybody improves. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's vertical jump gets up. Everybody goes faster. Junior year gets a little bit tougher. And what we would always do junior year, you know what I'd start doing? I'd start blaming you. Well, Rich, you're not improving because you're not really committed. You're not eating the way that you should. You're not getting enough sleep. You're not, you know, and, and then senior year would generally be, you know, nine months of banging your head against the wall because you're thinking, Jesus, I actually got weaker. I didn't get stronger. Because you 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 went through the we have a ceiling period. effect yeah, yeah a ceiling and, effect and I think it's acknowledging the ceiling and then thinking where do I go well how do let, let, let's, the ceiling this is I think this is critical for for strength coaches how do we break through that then so you have somebody that comes in and if they're not used to weightlifting then they're going to come in you just start having them squat you crank their volume up they crank the intensity up and boom they just get super super strong then they're going to hit that plateau two years three years four years in what do you, i've got my ideas but i definitely want to hear what are your ideas that will break someone through that so they can have continued improvement for a decade exactly what you said but what but specificity you know the specificity of, the specificity the you know the like now we're exploring much more like you said you it's hard to measure you know unilateral squatting we don't think so you know we're we're doing sandbag spots we had guys this year you know we're up to 90 pounds between sandbags we've got perform better they're calling them i think sand collars you know that we yeah, can put around their neck yeah. and and so we're just trying to say okay now what i really want is i want to see that strength be really good relative strength as opposed to just really good max strength i'm gonna i'm like all right I got here max strength wise. I know this is about where you're going to be. Now I'm going to chase the specific end. Sled pulling, sled pushing. I yep. think there's a lot of stuff. And as you said, I think, you know, if I was in the track and field world, it would probably be playing with, you know, different different size and different type implements and trying to figure out, okay, you know, if I get better, like what's the what's the weight of the shot? I don't really 16 know. 16 pounds. 16. So, you know, maybe it's all right. We're gonna throw, you know, kind of like the, you know, the baseball idea. You know, we're gonna go throw oh, twelve. We're gonna throw twelve. Throw, throwers, we, we, it depends on the system, but everybody for the most part has a heavy ball for, for the shot. They'll usually throw an eighteen for the guys, um, then they'll throw a fourteen for a light ball. But you can go nuts with, you know, I mean, I used to throw a fifteen and a half because you can get into, um, 
you can get into an argument or discussion about, well, how far off of the actual weight can you get? Because if, if I'm throwing a 20, well, then now movement-wise, that doesn't feel anything like right. the 16. But, but that's what you get into sort of the a lot of, yeah, the Bondarchuk, you know, specific strength, yep. for, special strength versus specific strength. Yeah, he usually used, strength. I think it was two, I think I might be wrong, but I think it was he would use two balls. And then they would just throw that, and he would kind of see how they respond. And he was paying attention to when did they adapt to the balls, and the moment that the ball, the, the distances started going up, then he sort of change. Yeah, and, that, and that's and I don't know necessarily like I don't know where the magic is. I just know that the magic is not in you know strength training. To me, conventional strength training is that definition of insanity thing in terms of doing the same thing over and over again and expecting the result to change. Because the other thing that you alluded to in your talk today, tissue tolerance. Yeah. The thing that you find, and you found this too, is that you reach a tissue tolerance point at which your back, or maybe it's your hip, or maybe it's your hamstring, or maybe it's your pec, starts to say, you know something, I'm not tolerating this load anymore. Right. And then what you what do you do? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna rehab, I'm gonna ice, I'm gonna take anti-inflammatories, I'm gonna do this. I'm going to try to, in some way, alter my tissue tolerance. And what you generally do is you get back to about the same weight and you get hurt again. And you get back to about the same weight. I wrote an article uh, called Slamming Your Hand in the Car Door. And I said it would be like if you, had Amazing told, name. if you had told me, like if you'd come to me and said, Mike, I slammed my hand in the car door, I broke all my fingers. But, I'm, you know, I, I got them, they're all splinted. I'm letting them all heal up. And as soon as I'm done and healed up, I'm going to go back and slam my hand in the car door again. You'd be like, wow, that's really stupid. Great metal picture. But right, but from a training standpoint, that's what we do. I mean, that's how often have you heard of these guys? Oh yeah, you know, I had my shoulder. You know, I got I got my rotator cuff repaired. I did this. I did that. Can't wait to get back to benching. And you're kind of like, your body has already told you yeah. that you are at a failure point of tissue tolerance to this particular activity. Be that disc. Be that whatever. Rotator cuff, labrum, yeah, whatever meniscus, it is. Whatever. You're, you've hit the failure point. There's nothing you're going to do to alter that failure point. In people, you know, I'll get a PRP injection, you know, I'll do this, I'll get stem cells. I'm like, no, you can't inject that shit all over your body. When you get to the point <laughs> that you hit, you know, your tissue, like I was at, I was a power lifter in college. I used to lift with Rob. And I got to a point at right around 500 squat, 500 deadlift, I would invariably get injured. Yep. Every single time. And I would take time off and I'd come back and train and I'd get back to that strength level and something would go wrong. And at a certain point I realized, okay, I was not intended to be, you know, a 600 squatter or a 600 deadlifter. My structure does not lend itself to that particular loading kind of pattern. And I think that's where people, a lot of us as strength coaches, and that's where the functional thing is beautiful because you can, it's like you can bypass some of these breakdown prone areas, well, particularly you, in the back, you know, which is, oh, of course, you know, you switch to unilateral stuff and it's some great stuff. I, I'll send you all the Alex Matera stuff, but the Alex Matera stuff, I've been talking about Alex for the last probably year and a half, two years. It's freaking brilliant. So what Alex did, and you're going to really appreciate this because this is so smart. So Alex is an uh, Aussie rules football guy down in Australia, obviously. But he, at the time he did this, he did a uh, paper presentation for the ASKCA or whatever, Australian strength and conditioning, yep. you know, whatever stuff, acronym yeah. acronyms, yeah. And it was about unilateral training. And so one of what he was trying to figure out was basically how much weight is on one leg. So he started doing, he was having guys do um, different squatting type things on force plates. They were using a Smith machine. So, 
not as functional as I would like it to be. But in the theory, what he was trying to figure out is trying to all right, remove variables. Right, remove variables. And the big variable was okay. What is the what is the actual weight? So what he did in this. Have you read Range? Hmm? No. No. So Range, Epstein, uh, David Epstein, really good. Um, but he um, he talks about in Range the idea of undiscovered connections. So it's like when you discover the respiratory therapist talking about breathing and nasal breathing and all those things, and you realize, wow, that really helps in physical therapy, you know. And they're they're talking about people with, you know, pulmonary disorder. But I'm talking about somebody developing intra-abdominal pressure. But yet these things all of a sudden. They, they mesh right into yeah. or a purse lift exhale or there are things like that. What uh, the, the Tara pulled together was he found this study on pilots where they were trying to figure out what the load was in the seat of a plane. It was some like post-World War II study, 1955. Sure. But what they determined was that the torso was 68% of body weight. You know, basically they, they weighed a bunch of these pilots and then they sat them, I guess. They must have put a scale in the seat. Sure. And the conclusion was that the weight of their torso was 68% of their body weight. So effectively... That's how you calculate yeah, whatever's right. going on the seat. But so what he did from that is he then said, okay, if I do a one leg squat, I therefore have 84% of my body weight because 32% is my torso, or 68 is my torso, 32 is my lower body, 16 per leg, I add 16 to 68, I get 84. Yeah. So basically what he said then is he did the math and he said, so if you get a guy who's 100 kilos, if I put 100, if I weigh 100 kilos and I put 100 kilos on my back and I do a squat, I squatted 168 kilos because I right. squatted 100 kilos plus the weight of my torso. And the weight of, well, it depends on the joint, but yeah, <laughs> any, any any body segment above the joint of discussion right. that's also there, yeah. so the thigh. Yeah, and you could, well, you could if you wanted in that, but he didn't, he didn't account for the thigh. He basically that's said right. 168, but the point was, if I do a one leg squat, unloaded, I'm at 84. Yeah. I'm at half of a body weight squat. So his thing was that based on their research, and they did this all out with force plates, was that a body weight single leg squat was equal to a body weight back squat. A 50% body weight single leg squat was equal to a double body weight back squat. So now I'm looking because, you know, we'd have that idea of, well, you want to be able to back squat double body weight because that's, you know, the, the indicator yeah, that everybody gave you. Yeah. Now I look at it and say... In my functional world, if I can get you to, to single leg squat 50% of body weight, so I can get someone like you, like you're probably what, 210, 215 now? Yep. Yeah. So let's just say, you know, I can get you to do 100 pounds in a single leg squat. I can get the equivalent lower body load of you squatting 400 pounds. Well, think about it. So I, I did, um, I collected data on this is a good way to put it, because I think a the front foot elevated step back lunge, reverse lunge, whatever I want to call it, but loading it where the barbell stays over the heel and the knee is over the toe at the bottom is should be the king exercise of the lower body. That's like the greatest thing because they're loading the legs similar to a squat, right? And that means that you it's going to be functionally similar, movement patterns similar. And because you've got most of your weight on that front leg, you're not loading the back hip flexor too much. Because if you're that 90-90 position, vertical shin, vertical um, femur, your, your back hip flexor just can't generate enough force. And so the load's way down. Well, what I found is just on flat ground, so not front foot elevated, I said athletes should be able to move 72 to 80 percent of their of their rep max. So if they're doing a, a 500 pound back squat, I had athletes that were able to move 80 percent of that 
with just a step back lunge. So, so they do that. That's a guy moving 400 pounds. So you're doing a step back lunge with 400 pounds and you want to talk about tissue adaptation. Well, that means if a back squat, he's only putting 250 through each leg with a, with a step back lunge, he's putting 400 pounds, which is, which is close to double the load going through there. So if you want to talk about tissue adaptation and tissue stimulus, it's, it's better. Right. And it's, it's not only better, it's way better. Like it's, it's better, like not close better. Right. And that's what. Materia's research. And that's just, look from at just research. Pure, that's just pure mechanics of right. it. We're not even talking about the fact that we spend 90% of our time right. in unilateral support. Like, exactly. how other than volleyball and maybe, maybe basketball where they're jumping up to get a rebound, how often are you doing, you know, just jumping straight up off of, you know, equal load through both so feet? I tell people rowing is the only sport. Rowing is another rowing one. Rowing is the only really purely bilateral sport. The yep. rest. You know, and like I said, you know, blocking in volleyball. Yeah, know, receiving in volleyball, receiving yeah. in volleyball. There's a couple, yeah, there's but a couple. they can still be offset. But if you're talking about almost any other sport, you're spending the vast majority of your time in single support. Yeah. And then you look at, again, because you know you were talking about core, but you look at muscular specificity. When you're standing on one leg, you know your adductors a pelvic stabilizer, your gluteus is a pelvic stabilizer, your opposite side QL is a pelvic, yep. you know, is a pelvic stabilizer, like. You've got a whole different stabilization strategy going on when you're doing that unilateral, whether it's step back lunge, whether it's slide board lunge, whether it's one leg squat, whatever it is, the stabilization strategy is the right one. It's the one that your body neurologically recognizes as correct. And it's, you know, that's what people look at and think your body, like I said, I think at some point, the more bilateral training you do, the worse you become athletically. And I hate to say it, and I can say it because I'm an ex-powerlifter, go to a powerlifting meet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. And watch the guys move around. Well, that was like... They're not, they're not athletic-looking people. None of them... You don't look at anybody. And I would say, if you go to a track meet, you look and go, wow. I bet these people... You know, I bet that guy could, you know, dunk a basketball. He used to have, when I was at BU, we had three seven-foot-high jumpers at that time. And I was there. Artie McDermott was there. And oh, yeah. Uh, Declan Haggerty, I think, what was Declan's Declan name? Haggerty, wow. Yeah, they were both there. And then we had three. So we had, we placed in the NCAAs when I was at BU with five guys. Yeah, in, I think we placed top four because we had three hides. We had a kid named Greg Gonzalez who's since passed away, Fred Sale, and I can't. Steve was an English kid. I can't think of his other name, but they all high jumped seven feet. That's pretty good. They, they just go and have freaking like Dunkamania in the gym, the three of them. Just oh, go yeah. crazy, just running and dunking basketballs. And that, to them, that was training. Like they, they had so much fun training, you know, dunking basketballs, just you know, doing all kinds of crazy shit. But specificity of training, none of them, none of the three, the the two throwers liked the weight room. I think because they felt like they should. But I mean, just depending on the sport. Like when you asked me about the belt this this and afternoon, and then you asked uh, Connor McCullough was there too at the same time. Oh, His you know, son. yeah. Oh, yeah. They were all they were all BU guys. Wow. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's Connor's. Dad's Connor's name is son, Connor. Yeah, Connor's dad's name is Connor. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's which, really that's pretty crazy. Yeah, but I would say that's the other thing. You never realize who you're going to know because yeah, you don't. You, you look at how things change over time, and you realize all those guys now, like I said, Greg has since passed away, and the rest of those guys are in their fifties, and and then Connor's got a kid who's pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah, the uh, in the, that world. I want to circle back. You had said we we're talking about tissue tolerance with bilateral training, and. One of the, the huge benefits to functional training is the variability in movement. 
So that's really good for that learning and adapting thing, but it also is great for distributing the load amongst more tissues. If you're doing a bilateral, a mostly bilateral training, the variability of the movement is, is minimal, minuscule even, compared to bilateral training, sorry, uh, unilateral training. So when you have an athlete that's doing right leg, left leg, you know, the, with the reverse lunges or whatever, and you're, you're changing the movement variability a ton, you actually can train them harder because you're not overloading a given tissue just repetitively in, in their training. And, and particularly you're not overloading failure-prone tissue. Like failure-prone tissue, I always think back discs, those types of things are failure-prone tissues. They're the things that tend to break down. You know, it's like looking at a car, you know certain car parts. Like you know that I'm gonna have to replace brakes, brakes. before tires. Yeah. Right? And I feel that way with, with the back. So you're right, I mean, I think you, you get movement variability. You get like, it was funny, you had that picture of the guy squatting. Now that is, was un, as unnatural a position as you could think about, the guy in your squatting The, the Olympic, the, uh, the Donnie Shankel? Yeah, Donnie no, Shankel. not Donnie. Oh, you power. mean, yeah, you that's don't an elite powerlifter. Elite power, yeah, and I mean, because he's trying to get in the perfect position to just get to where he needs to go. Like he is figuring out the shortest distance between two points, between one degree below parallel and where yeah, I started. Yeah. Yep. And, and he's, you know, he's way abducted. He's way externally rotated. And you kind of look at that and think, he's getting really, really good at that, which is completely useless in anything except what he's that, actually except doing. Except that. Yeah. And, and yet, again, we, we play around. Like, that's why, you know, you, you know, you've been influenced by the West Side guys. But I think West Side is like one of the biggest kind of frauds that's been perpetrated on the whole system because... People like the, the meatheads, they love that stuff. They love like the hoodie up and they love the whole routine, you know, that goes with like West Side and, you know, I'm gonna lift. And yet I look at it and think it's it's not athletic training. It's powerlifters. These guys, I mean, Louis yeah, and, always and had powerlifters. That's what he's trained. He's not he is not trained, like there's no history there of people becoming more athletic, but there's a huge history of people copying that philosophy with the thought process that it was going to make their guys more athletic. Yeah, it's the association behind if you squat more, you will perform better. And sure, if your squat's going from 100 kilos to 200 kilos, that makes a difference. But if you've got an athlete that's already had a 200 kilo back squat, say they're a, I don't know, even a thrower, I don't know if going from two to three is going to have the same distance, right. difference. No, and I, I honestly don't think it does. And I think that's, but that's been one of, but because the people that go into strength and conditioning coaching tend to be more lifters mm -hmm. than performance oriented. Well, strength people. and conditioning, right. and I think that the strength aspect of that job tends to be emphasized. Right, and also when you think strength and conditioning, but there, there's also you know now like I always, and I, I used to say like Mark Verstegen was the you know the the key of making this the king of making titles longer because suddenly you became performance enhancement specialist. But in reality, that's really what you want it to be because what you weren't a powerlifting coach. You weren't when I started out. We were like the weight guy, right? They said, "Mike, he's the weight guy," and we got guys in the weight room and we got them stronger. And again, we had we had reasonable success from that initial association of, like you said, get stronger. But and I said this yesterday in the Carl Lewis tweet. Um, if if it worked the way strength coaches wanted it to work then there would be a lot more powerlifters in the Olympics running right, sprints, yeah. right? But there are none. And, and even I always look at the, the the perfect example to me is the mountain. I forget his name, the guy from Game of Thrones. Yep. He was like a, you know, like a second level basketball player in Iceland before he became Gigantic. one of the world's strongest men, yep. right? 
And I would be willing to bet he's probably a worse basketball player now than he was before that time. And the pursuit of that level of strength does not end up being beneficial. And I, I was talking about this. Maybe if you're maybe if you're a center or a guard, it's really beneficial in football. Yeah, maybe there are certain positions in tackle, sports that it matters more. But even more. I think like left tackle, the guy's got to be really athletic and the guy's got to be able to move and use his hands. I've always found the left tackles struggle with strength training. They're not good lifters. Longer legs, longer bodies. You know, the other ones, my back hurts when I squat kind of guys. But the guards centers, you know, they're your classic, like, strength coach. I love those guys. I love those three. You know, the two guards in the center. They're yeah. my guys. You know and I'm like? They love guys. lifting. They're strong yeah, as hell. Exactly. They're yeah. your guys because they love lifting and they're strong as hell. And, like, even in throwing, probably, you probably had lots of marginal throwers who were really good lifters. Yeah. And. Well, then, I mean, the, you can be, I think that, that. That lifting correlates well with her. I mean, Joe Kovacs, he got sponsored by um, like this humongous company because he put up a video of him squatting 850 for a set of four, and he's a shot putter. Um, whereas I don't think that that kind of strength level is going to help him if he was like a soccer player. Like it, it, it just prohibits that. But with the shot put, because you're taking a 16 pound ball and throwing it, it needs to be super strong and super fast. And he, it doesn't have to necessarily be, you know, as mobile as he might have to be if he was playing tennis or something. But also, would you look at that and think, you know, <clears throat> is the juice worth the squeeze for him in terms of maybe if you get enough money out of the sponsorship, sure, the right, right. always get paid. But realistically, if you're, if I'm saying, okay, I'm giving you twenty world class throwers to train, do you want to put eight hundred fifty pounds in their back? Like, do, would you look at that and think, hmm, you know, is that my general philosophy on it? Is that one like every. Every position, every sport is going to have different requisites. And let, I was a power athlete, so you know I think that if you're a thrower, you should be able to move, you know, double body weight pretty easily. But then once you you get to that point, I'm more of the all right. Let's just maintain those levels. Let's use weight training as a way to load the body down for peaking purposes and adaptation purposes. But really, it's all about now taking that strength and that power that you have and making it, you know, specific to your sport. It's and that's why I'm a big believer in the idea like, okay, if you tell me, all right, I can squat double body weight. So I can squat, you know, you can squat 440. Then I'm like, okay, we really got to work. We got to get you to the point where you can do single leg squats with 100, 110 pounds, which is not easy to do. Right. It, do you know what I mean? So because I, one of the things I always strive for is I want somebody who's really balanced. I don't want someone who gets good at it. Because I think that's what happens with powerlifting too is that you get good at a lift. Like I used to look at someone and think, hey, if you can bench 400, you better be able to incline 300. And people would be like, oh, I don't know about that. And I'm like, yeah, if you can bench 400, you should be able to bench 400. You should be able to incline 300. And you should probably be able to overhead press 225 standing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because that would indicate to me that everything yeah, was balanced. working the way that it was supposed to and not that you were really good at one lift. And the same way, if, you, you know, if you're 200 pounds and you can bench press 400, then I want to see you do a chin-up with 200 pounds strapped around your waist because I want you to be I want your pulling musculature to be equivalent to your, to your pushing musculature and we've always pushed our athletes to do all of those things as opposed to get good at pet, yeah that's, that's a like neat, get good at I, stuff I, that they like I love that concept because you know in, in therapy I'm always trying to move the, the athlete towards symmetry so I'm checking for different ranges of motion but what's really neat about what you're talking there is you're not assessing them functionally you're basically going there and saying okay from a strength performance standpoint are they balanced so if you can bench press a certain amount you probably should be able to pull a certain amount if you can 
you know, squat a certain amount or whatever you probably should be able to do. I mean, it goes back, if you remember, the old Paulquin, you know, the whole structural balance idea that they talked about. And I think that's I wish probably, they executed that better. Like the concept yeah, was amazing. It never. Yeah, yeah. They didn't execute it well, but yeah. it doesn't take anything away from the idea. The concept is great, was, yeah. But like I said, if you, oh no, that's Colin. I didn't see it. I didn't see it, maybe. Is Carl calling you? No, yeah, yeah Carl. No, but no, I was, uh, no, but it's interesting. So this is like my son. He's, he did a double at 70 pounds in the chin-up. He can only bench 205. So he's actually pulling at above his pushing level right now. And most of our athletes are. Like most of our athletes pull better than they push. The average, again, weight room, you know, if you think the average power lifter doesn't even think, you know, it makes no difference to them. And it's probably why I think it's probably also why they have shoulder issues because oh, I, I be. wholeheartedly agree because most of the time when I look at somebody's program, if they want to get their bench up, I'll look at them. You just count pushing to pulling sets. Yeah. And, you know, most of them are like, oh, I'm doing flat bench. Then I'm going to do incline and then I'm going to do dumbbell bench. And it's like, OK, bro, like just yeah. slow it down there. Let's just do a little bit less pressing and actually work on some pulling. Yeah. And then most of them can't pull worth the shit. Most of them can't pull body weight. Correct. And that was, you know, and I found that that's one, something that we did years ago when we started to have some guys with shoulder problems is I started to look at, it was, and again, I probably, it probably originally came out of that Poliquin structural balance idea. I love that but, idea. That's okay. actually one of the things that kind of got me interested in rehab-ish type things. Yeah. And that's why we're pushing even, um, you know, posterior chain strength. Like I want people, I want stronger posterior chains. I, I don't want people... You know, we used to say, we said, we used to, back in the old days, we used to think if you could do one leg squats, you were pretty strong. Now we look at it and think if you can do one leg squats with 50% of your body weight, you're pretty strong. Now we look at things You're like, talking about pistols? Yeah, well, not like a, like a, uh, I'll show because I, I don't, I hate the word pistol because I don't, I, th I, I think of pistol and I think of someone Lame. being on the floor and doing like the, you know, the RKC party trick kind of um <laughs> Which you is know, one frustrating part of functional training world where they, it just becomes a circus trick. Yes, exactly. So, like, all right, I'm not but, really sure so, if you standing with one leg on a BOSU ball with a kettlebell on yeah. the other hand and, you know, a band wrapped around your knees is all that, uh, quote unquote, functional. So this would be more along. That's that's I have a lot of them with my son, but that's, you know, because he's he's a kid. He's 16, you know, but that's. 40 pounds or 60 pounds or something like that. But that's how we would set up so we don't have, like, I always think pistol gives you a really high hip flexor load, which if you get people that are more angular, they'll get some back yeah. discomfort. Whereas setting up the way that we would set up to let that free leg hang a little bit more. But but that's, you know, for us, that's like, that's, an, um, you know, I wish, well, I don't know if these guys can see, but I mean, that's a fundamental exercise for us. If yeah, we I look was gonna, at that was actually one of the questions slot. that I had. Like, what you know, what you guys are doing those quite a bit. Are you? I'm seeing more of that on on your social media yeah. stuff than I am of like you your know, normal. You know, this is a fundamental <laughs> exercise for us. That skater squat idea, and those are they're a bitch. I mean, they're actually harder than one leg squats, which is weird because you'd look at it and think, well, less range. You know, he's only going to like a quarter, you know, so what, half squat. What, what's happening there is with, with the other one. The dorsiflexion is, is is basically a sagittal plane limitation, and when you put the weight back, you're you're shifting the center of mass even farther backwards, which is making it harder. With the other one, you're pushing everything forward. So as your butt goes backwards, your center of mass shifts back, and you're offsetting it by yeah. putting stuff forward. With that one, your butt goes back and the leg goes back, so you have a greater um, amount of movement of the center of mass towards the heel, which makes it really really hard to do. Yeah. 
But that's the stuff like, and then you said like, you know, we are more slideboard lunge than step back lunge, but we've looked at that, you know, one leg straight leg deadlift, skater squat, one leg squat, mm-hmm. slideboard lunge. Those have now become like our big four unilateral lifts because they're all purely unilateral. There's no like, no one can say like with rear foot elevated split squat, which people are like, well, that's kind of your lift. And I'm like, no, not it was like, it was something that we did a lot, but we started to realize that those whatever Bulgarians as people would like to refer to them, which I hate that name, but it's people would just utilize their back leg too much. Yes. So now we're like, we're taking back legs gone. There's no back leg. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, so we're going to eliminate back leg. We're going to make all these things purely unilateral. And we're going to make people really get strong. Uh, oh, so that's really so purely. That maybe is the answer sense. to my question. Cause I was, I was asking, you know, why were you emphasizing that? And it's because it's purely unilateral. So I love that answer. What, what do you what, what do you think about this this concept or this issue with it? I, so I teach you know uh, a front foot elevated step back lunge is not purely bilateral because you can use the back leg and you kind of do use the back leg. But a lot of the sports that I you know spent all my time learning, they have to be able to generate shitloads of force. And so I need them. I need a shot putter if they're going to throw seventy foot in the shot. I need them to be able to generate a lot of force there. Um, what are your thoughts on like, well, those, you just can't get a whole lot of force going through that leg. Whereas if you do that front foot elevated, uh, or just even just a normal step back lunge, you can actually load that front leg like a squat. And now I can put a hundred, uh, 200 kilos on there and actually load that front leg like you would in a squat. Do you think that there's still benefits to that? Or do you just think even with a football player or a thrower, the I'd purely still, unilaterals, I'd that? still do the purely unilateral stuff. Even if they have to do incredible amounts of force generation, incredible amounts of neural drive. Because I think they're going to get it anyway. Because I think they get, like, you know, we're looking at, like, these are, you know, 170-pound 16-year-olds. When we start looking at it, it's really interesting. Actually, i got to see if I can. I I hope, I wish people could see this. This is more interesting. Um, I can drop those in the video. Yeah. i got to see if I can find. You're just looking for a different kind I'm, of... Yeah, I'm looking actually for this kid who's at, I think it was RIT, uh, Rochester Institute of Technology, but it was one of their... Uh, they they did um, skater squat, which is what we would call that version with the back leg back, testing with their hockey players. And the kid, I forget what the weight was, but it was pretty substantial. It was not, uh, it was not like an inconsequential amount of weight. But I'm trying to see if I can find it so you can see it. Yeah, so here's this kid. So, you know, this kid. So we're watching a video of a skater squat, which is when you're doing a front leg. Make sure you're just squatting off the front leg and the, and the leg's going backwards and he's doing um, a sandbag hold and, and a zerker hold. Yeah, and so this kid, I think he's at like 140 pounds, which is still, a, I mean... That's a pretty substantial you, amount of weight so, between so the vest one, and the zercher, you know. So I'm looking at like your throwers. You might be able to get a guy doing 200 pounds. Yeah, I'll have to tinker with it just because for me, when I was throwing the hammer or I was training for Olympic weightlifting, like it mattered that I, like I needed to be able to squat over 550. I needed to be able to have my clean, you know, up over 170 kilos. And so with that, although I love the concept of having it be purely unilateral, yeah. I, I I'm. I'm just trying to think through, like, are they getting enough force generation there, 
or I mean, of course, keep those in there, or would they benefit from still having once a week or throwing in their programs here and there a little bit more of that that high neural drive yeah. stuff, like a step back and, lunge? And it could, it's hard to say, but if you look at like uh, Nateri's research shows that a body weight load would be equal to three times body weight squat. So if you could get to someone who could handle, you know, in that exercise, if you could handle 200 pounds, then that would be like you squatting 600. That would be your 550 plus based on the force plate studies that they did. It's yeah. pretty interesting. Well, but, I'm, we're also pigeonholing you into that's the only lower body movement that you, yeah, <laughs> that no, you and, use. You know, it's funny. We still Olympic lift like we're big hand clean people. We still trap our deadlift. And trap bar deadlift is really probably our only conventional bilateral lower body strength exercise. Why don't you go... I actually, because of the eccentric load on the back when you're doing a hand clean, I actually think that there's more load on the back. Do you not go from the floor because it's a little bit harder to smoothly use a first pull, second pull kind of thing? Yes, you're just exactly. like quick and dirty, like, yep. all right, here it is. Jump the weight up. Yep, exactly. You know, all the cues that Olympic weightlifting coaches sort of cringe at because, you know, they're like, oh, there's no shrug and you, it's not a jump. But you're just like, fuck it. I just want this kid exactly. to be able to use his hips in there. That's why you do the hand clean. Yep, exactly. And, it's, and the other thing is hand clean, I always say this. All people are created equal in the hand clean. So I can teach the same hand clean to a seven foot tall guy and a four foot tall girl because we're going to come from a position above the knees. We're going to tell them exactly what you said. Jump, shrug, sit, you know, get under the bar. But when we put the bar on the floor, the smaller person, the shorter person is clearly advantaged. Yep. And then, the you know, the basketball player, the rower, the football player is at a disadvantage because, and I had these... I always have a picture just of a plate in my presentations. I think it's, I want to say it's like, I don't know, 18 and a half inch diameter. I forget what the actual diameter of the plate is, but that sounds about Oh, right. you mean a, like an actual weight plate? Yeah, an actual weight yeah, plate. Yeah. I think it's 18.5. Something. End to end. And so that means that the distance from the floor is the same. Is the same for everybody, which does not lend itself well to teaching across a broad spectrum of people. Because again, who, what makes a good Olympic weightlifter in general? Generally speaking, a, a shorter person is going to be a better Olympic weightlifter. The the examples again, and there are a few, but the examples of tall Olympic weightlifters are reasonably rare. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a the world record holder in the in the heavyweight now is six 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 yeah, seven. Yeah, I mean, there are. The, but that's a weird example, right, but yeah, in general, you've said, got. But in general, because of where it's the same thing, like in deadlifting, you know, the the shorter you are, the you know, the more. The more mass per square inch you possess, yep. the easier that's going to be because the lift is still about A to B. And if A is 18, if we know that A is 18 and a half inches and B is wherever it is up here, then A and B get different. So for us, it's just a lot easier. And well, we've just been that way for... I mean, decades now. And well, but that's just that's an example of just your pragmatism, where right. you're looking like I could give you all the arguments in the world why we had this discussion maybe 15 years ago. You know, if you want to make someone explosive, teach them on an Olympic weightlift. It just might take you months, right. right, or years. Like I used to when I was a strength coach, all the freshmen had to come in on Wednesdays, and we did Olympic weightlifting training. This is for the throwers because they benefit tremendously from being able to Olympic weightlift correctly. Um, they would have to come in on Wednesdays and do just Olympic weightlifting training so that they knew how to do it. Well, you don't, you ain't got time for that shit. No, exactly. So you're just like, all right, we're just going to do hang cleans. Sprinting, you know, we do, we just, we run sprints and people are always like, you know, what about ankling? What about this? What about that? I'm like, no, we just run sprints. Yeah. And people are like, well, you can't do that. I'm like, what about, do you guys, um, get an hour twice a week 
a lot of times with our kids. Well, it's funny because like when I when I before I had met you, I, I I'd read your books and, and and had a lot of respect for what you were doing. But then I met somebody that had been an intern through here. And somebody was saying that, oh, Mike Boyle, you know, he doesn't like Olympic weightlifting. And they're, of course, putting words in your mouth. And they're like, oh, he only does hang cleans. And I'm just like, man, that's just, that's just silly because I, I benefited a lot from doing Olympic weightlifting. And then when this guy Anthony was just explaining to me, well, they get him for an hour and there's a system that they sort of run him through and they're going to run him through a 10-week program. And I was like... Oh, that makes sense. If we only had them for 10 weeks at a time, or it's only in the summertime, you don't have time to teach someone how to do it like a, you know, a, a squat snatch from the floor. I mean, that takes months, if not years, to learn how to do that. So I love the pragmatism of just like, no, we're just going to do this, and guess what? It's going to work. You know, maybe it would be better if I spent 10 years teaching them how to do Olympic weightlifting. He's like, but, but the funny thing about it is when people say they do hand cleans, but they don't like Olympic weightlifting, and I'm kind of like, I don't understand. Like, You're like, I, I think that doesn't I, make any sense. Yeah. Like, if you said they don't do any Olympic weightlifting, he doesn't like Olympic weightlifting, I would be like, okay, that I would have to be in agreement with you. Yeah. But we hang clean, we dumbbell snatch, we close grip snatch. You know, close grip snatch was Mike Wojcik freaking 40 years ago with his throwers saying, I want a longer pull. You know, I want, you know, I don't want to be out here. I remember him thinking, and I was like, that makes perfect sense. I always say, snatch grip is stupid. Snatch grip makes no sense to me because the only reason you snatch grip is to lift more weight. The snatch grip allows you to move the weight through less distance. Right. It, that's its purpose for Olympic weightlifting. But when you think about athletic performance, close grip snatch makes way more sense. My only, my because only. Because when you like, you were talking about like impulse, you know, it, like yeah. you're moving. You have to make, yeah, you have to you get have the to bar make moving that quicker. Load move significantly further. Maybe you know, if, if we looked at this to this. You might be talking about making the lows move eight inches, ten inches more. Yeah, maybe or more. a foot. Yeah, my I, I've done close grip snatch a, a bunch. My my beef with it is because your arms are you know right on like fourteen inch, eighteen inch grip, where the bar actually sort of hits you in the thigh is not at a good place for like getting a really explosive movement. So it's coming off of the, like your distal thigh, sorry, the the thigh by your down by your knees. Whereas when you're snatch grip, you can actually bring that into the pocket. We would call it high there and get a super explosive contraction. So I might argue you can get more explosiveness out of a traditional grip snatch because you can load it up more and you still have to have the same impulse. Because where the bar falls with a close grip snatch, it just never feels as explosive as a clean or as a snatch itself. But I, I get the point with, yes, you're moving it farther. And that's, um, but again, it goes back to, like you said, pragmatic, simple, not, you know, make, because then the injury prevention factor, right? When we, when we first started, we did conventional snatches. What was the result of conventional snatches? 20% of the guys were now in the training room complaining about their shoulders to go along with the 20 they were complaining about their back, you know. And if they weren't the same people, now we've got 40% of our guys hurt. Right. We go to close grip snatch, we go to zero. Well, you go to zero for, I don't know if it's so much the position, but the load can't be anywhere near the same. Right, load's not near the same, but also, I mean, if you think, you know, abduction, external rotation, you know, you're here, in that snatch. Yeah, more people get injured in a snatch yeah. grip in the right. shoulder than, yeah. than, than overhead, than because jerks. Because we know, everybody, anybody who's in the, you know, whatever, the sports medicine world knows that that's not generally 
a particularly shoulder-friendly position. Like you look at where you're going to catch a snatch, you'd be like, well, that's not the so best. So just for people that aren't aware, so um, abduction external rotation is actually an orthopedic test for anterior instability. And so if I think what you're saying is if you're in that, if you're kind of moving in that direction, you're putting the shoulder in a more potentially unstable position, right. which is yeah. true. And more impingeable. You know, you're getting, there's just a lot of negatives yeah. that aren't there. But hey, I got to, we said five hours for the podcast, but I think we've gone about an hour and twenty. One well, hour and twenty nine minutes and thirty two seconds. So we only, <laughs> we only have you know three and a half more hours to go. No, if you got to bounce out of here, I have to go home because I got to come back. I, my son and his friends are lifting at three thirty, so I'm going to go home and then I'm going to come back here at three thirty. We'll, we'll have to do this again. We got part way through uh, part way through the questions. Two questions. Yeah, but I mean, we got to dig into the the functional stuff a lot, and I guess. Just thanks for your pragmatism, your willingness to teach, and it's it's been a it's been a fun conversation. Well, thanks for coming out. Like I said, I honestly could do this all day, except for the fact that I, I do have to go home and change my clothes and come back here. And uh, seems reasonable. Coach, well, I'll get to my I'll kid get, and his friends. I'll get to work on it. Oh, I got to ask one last question because I'm going to go test it with the pull up. Are you using 68% of the torso into that total load, or is it no, only use, the load between the legs? Total load, basically body weight plus the load between the legs. So body weight plus body the load between. Plus. You're, you're yep. counting so, the body weight. Okay. Yep. So whatever your bench is, one, bench 1RM one should equal body weight plus external load. Okay, so you're doing a one-to-one. -one. So if I yep. bench 400, I should be able to do body able weight to plus whatever to... Yep. Okay. Like You should be able to pull 200 if you could bench 400. Well, I'm going to go test it today. Yeah. So, great. Thanks again. We'll do this uh, again soon. Thank you very much. All right. This was a lot of fun. Yeah.